0: Hi, I'm E.B. Smith. I'm an actor, director, all-around storyteller coming to you from Athens, Ohio.
1: And I'm Adai Moon. I'm a dramaturg, playwright, director, and cultural worker coming from Atlanta, G.A.
0: And you are listening to Old Heads
1: Podcast. A deep dive into the struggle from behind the theater curve. How are you today, Adai? Oh, man. Hey, it's almost the end. It's almost the end of the apocalypse. I'm fine.
0: (laughs) Are You sure about that? <laughs> I mean, twenty twenty I mean, turning into twenty twenty one. We don't know what's going to happen.
1: happen. Something's gonna happen. I mean, I
0: but we probably have a new president, which is nice. I, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I, nice for. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: still so too early to call.
0: Well, listen, we got a we got a great show today. We're hanging out with Al Letson. I met Al God about fifteen years ago. <laughs> I directed a piece of his in Cleveland called Julius X for the Ingenuity Festival. Um, but you've known Al a
2: lot longer than me.
0: Yeah, I've known this gentleman for for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: love how you how you just said this gentleman. I know that's not what you wanted to say. <laughs> no, I'm, about to
1: say I'm about to say this nigga, but you know whatever. <laughs> nigga this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Welcome to the show, my friend. It's, good, hey, to see it's you good to be with both of you. It's good to be with both of you.
1: So, sir, what's been going on? So, so, so for those who who don't know, Alfie Lesson. Tell us a little bit about your work, your body work. I mean, this, this, this cat does everything. He's an investigative journalist. He's a playwright, poet, TV writer now I mean it's probably an exotic dancer on the load nobody just knows I,
2: man now. listen don't be blowing my cover <laughs> <laughs> <Don't be> blowing. <laughs> like, I'm trying to get the, that paper and I don't hey, need man. people to connect the dots so please <laughs>
1: <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do Slipshady exactly,
0: exactly. Silicon Valley ain't cheap man you know exactly that exactly ain't no
2: joke. I got kids you know sometimes you got sometimes you got to do what you got to do what <laughs> you got to do Got to do it. <laughs> all right, so I think, like, like both of you, distinguished gentlemen, uh, I I categorize myself as a, a storyteller. Um, I got my start doing spoken word and slamming all over the country. Which, like, I like to say that, like, I am a Grand Slam champion of Atlanta, oh. Georgia. Back in the nineties, I just don't remember what year, but I'm just saying. I'm just saying that back in the 90s, Duval drove up to Atlanta and whipped some ass. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I did that for a while. Then I got into doing solo shows, which led to me doing bigger ensemble pieces, uh, which is probably around the time when Evie and I first hooked up. Because uh, I was, do- I had a piece called Julius X that was that was doing for a bit. I, I never went to college because I, I am dyslexic, and I always loved writing. I mean, I remember writing my first play when I was probably in like fourth or fifth grade. Um, wow. But I never, um, at that age, I never thought it was something that could be anything serious. Like I could do anything with it. I, I grew up in a very religious southern baptist home and uh, i remember when i told my dad i was in my 20s that like i wanted to be a poet you know my dad was like how you gonna feed your family? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> how you gonna feed yourself? <laughs> like, like, like the idea. Yeah, poetry. What, 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 what is a poem, boy? What is a poem? Listen, I told my parents that. My mother said to me, like, what you need to do is what Langston Hughes said. You need to defer your dream. I was like, Mom, oh, that oh, poem see, is wrong. <laughs> a... <laughs> I'm not sure that's the
0: reading he intended of that that piece. <laughs>
2: Exactly. I was like, ma, like he's let not saying, right. He's saying it's a bad thing. Well, you let need to let dreams your dreams up. like a raisin inside.
1: Right. Exactly.
2: <laughs> That's what she basically saying, you know? Yeah. I don't know. She likes raisins. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> But that was the thing, you know? And so, you know, I I just kept doing my thing and one thing led to another. I I totally, you know what I've always believed is that I am an artist, I'm a writer, but my career is like like jazz in the sense of, you know, like I know what the chorus is. I'm always going to come back to it, but like, you know, if the saxophone wants to go in that way, let's let's ride. If 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 the drummer wants some, get a drummer some love. So, uh that's how I kept moving from like doing spoken word into, you know, doing theater. And then randomly it kind of ended up me going into journalism, which was like the most random thing. I won a contest. Uh, they were looking for new hosts, new shows. I had spent so much time, you know, on the ground, like crashing on poets' couches, and uh, and I was also a flight attendant. Like, you know, I would do my artistic stuff, and I felt like that was my career, but I also had to, like, do stuff to pay the bills, right? So I was a flight mm-hmm. attendant for a good bit. And those two things kind of combined, and I fell in love with the entry drug into public radio, which was This American Life. You know, it just kind of fit with all my storytelling stuff. And I just thought, you know, if there would ever be a time where anyone would ever let me do you know, this American life type stuff, like I would want to do a show about like the America that I see that like is from the ground up. And so when I saw this contest, I pitched that idea. I won the contest. And then I did my show for a couple of years. It was called State of the Reunion. Uh, it was successful. We won like a bunch of big awards. We were a really small team and like we were punching way above our weight. But I just got tired of constantly being in fundraising mode. And so I stopped doing that and came on to Reveal. And that was about seven years ago. When Reveal hired me, you know, I was really honest with them. I was like, yo, like, you know, this is investigative journalism. I've never done that before. And if you guys are looking for a Tom Brokaw, like, I'm not that. (laughs) And they said, like, actually, we're looking for the opposite. You know, Uh, we're looking for somebody that can, like, tell these really complex stories and deep investigations and, and make it connect with a listener. Um, and so that's how I got the gig. And, uh, and then through the time that I've been there, you know, I've, I feel like state of the reunion was my introduction to audio storytelling and reveal, like really taught me how to be a journalist and how to be an investigative journalist. And, um, and I, I, work with amazing people like what you hear in the podcast like I do my thing but definitely it's because I have a really amazing squad behind me um that, mm-hmm. that like makes it makes it sing and I still do my theater stuff I'm you know working on solo shows and in the last couple years I've gotten into tv writing um I've been uh, I'm in my second writer's room right now and I have a development deal with a network uh, on one of my properties, on one of my IPs, as they say, um, that we've been developing. Uh, and we'll see what happens with it. You know, TV is i um, I've had a, a great experience in TV, but also it is like one of those things where, you know, you build something with a development team for a while and then you just got to wait for somebody who has not been a part of the development at all to then take your product and make a decision, so it, that's been interesting, and definitely race plays a part in all those different aspects that I have been a part, and definitely in TV. So, uh, <laughs> so, so it, it's interesting
1: because that... you left out a really important part in, mm-hmm. in your storytelling narrative. I think it's important. So we have spoken word artist, playwright, actor investigative journalist possibly exotic dancer the, the the we're trying to figure out when not that's true um
2: it on the low low but but
1: tv writer but talk a little bit about writing writing for the comics
2: oh yeah 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 so comic books are uh are my first love. So I said I, I, I'm, I'm dyslexic, and the way I learned how to read was through comic books. Like, I... See, y'all are old enough. See, like, I could be myself on this podcast because it's the old-hands <laughs> podcast. We Take old- your shoes <laughs> off, boy. Exactly. I'm going to kick my shoes off and tell y'all something because y'all know what I'm talking about. Now... <laughs> Back yonder when I was a little man, <laughs> my aunt All was love. a teacher.
1: Eb, e- I apologize that Duval has come out.
2: I'm just, sure. I am so sorry, sir. <laughs> so ain't making any of me none, man. Let's do this. Yes. So back when I was uh, back when I was a little man back in the day. Um, yeah, like I, I had a hard time reading. I couldn't keep up with it with, with, with the rest of the class. And my aunt was a school teacher. And so every Saturday, I mean, I was a little kid and I still can feel that ah, every Saturday I would have to go to her house and we would do reading lessons and they were these Dick and Jane books. Y'all remember the Dick and Jane oh, books? Not here. God, I hated them, Spot. Dick What's and like Jane. Dick Jane
1: and Spot didn't have a dog. Named yes, Spot or yes, yes, yes.
2: Mm-hmm. I couldn't stand Dick. I couldn't stand Jane, and I hated that damn dog. I hated all of them. I just hated them. And she would make me read these boring ass Norman Rockwell looking. Th- I hated You're it. I hated it. And 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 I love my aunt. Uh, my my aunt is my girl, like I love her to death, but I would hate that and her husband, my uncle Bobby, one day came home with a stack of comic books and i i I, I guess that I was aware of comic characters, but I didn't like know about comic books and he brought these comic books, and uh, i'll I'll never forget it was a reprint of the issue where Captain America was pulled from the ice and thawed out, and uh-huh. um And man, I mean, that just, like, blew me away. And I just fell in love with reading at that point. And then, like, the dyslexia, like, now... I, don't, I actually think that my dyslexia is a blessing to me because it, it A, uh, has taught me how to be a more thorough reader. Like, my mind, I can read something and know I'm reading it wrong, and then I go back and reread and go back and, you know. But for me, like, at that point, what I began to... I don't think I could have, like, said this in words to you at the time, but, like, what was happening is that, for me, the story was the reward of going through the maze of dyslexia. Like, if I could figure all this out at the end of it... Like, Jean Grey is alive? What? You know what, what I'm saying? Like, like, yes, that was like, that was a win. So, like, I just fell in love with reading, you know? I, I would say, like, a couple years ago, not a couple years ago, like, it's long, it's like probably a decade ago now. I knew I wanted to write comics. And so I started, like... Hiring artists and started writing my own stuff. And then that led me into getting into a DC Comics workshop. I got to write a little story about Nightwing. And then, you know, a lot of different, I, I just got so busy with other stuff. So right now, like I'm actually getting back into like doing some comic stuff. I got some ideas that me and uh, this artist that I love have been playing around. And I got ideas for like, I mean, the problem with like like comic books now From my vantage point, and I think that every professional will have a different place of it, but like from my vantage point, the stories that I want to tell probably will not fit with the corporate direction of certain characters.
1: Certain established characters, you mean? Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. Like, I mean, like, for example, I'm going to say this on this podcast so if someone steals it, I could come back and say, like, I said this.
1: This is where they got this, right? Copyrighted audio <laughs> Exactly.
2: Copyright. Let's copyright this shit right now. So for me, I think that, like, I love the Green Lantern. The Green Lantern is, is my do. I, I I love Hal Jordan. I love uh, Jon Stewart. Guy Gardner can kick rocks. But everybody else, like, I love the Green Lantern Corps. And Green Lantern Corps is basically like they're space cops, right? Like, these little blue dudes gave them yep. rings oh. to go out and police the universe. And my thing is, I want to do a story about a galaxy that's like... Who elected you to come in here and regulate us? Hell no. (laughs) And so it's this whole story about, like, who says that these military police or these police officers can come in and judge a whole galaxy and so my idea is to like really flip it and and so like that this one galaxy is like no we're sovereign and we're gonna put you on trial because we never gave you this this who who says that these little blue guys know everything that there is to know and my my long-term goal for that story would be that like now the green lanterns have to be accountable to the people that they police Mm -hmm. oh wow so that's like the long...
1: found the Green Lantern! <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> Take the Emerald from them. They don't deserve it. Take the Emerald from them. <laughs> <laughs> they
1: don't deserve it. Take all the rings. Take all the rings. Now, so I know people are listening thinking, wait, this is a theater podcast. Why are they talking about comic books? But I'm going to use your segue with Green Lantern to segue in- into this because I am a firm believer being a comic book nerd for most of my life and also knowing how in so many ways, thinking about your, your Green Lantern idea, how the Black imagination is always being policed. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to talk about how you experienced that policing of Black imagination, both as a playwright and now as a TV writer.
2: Yeah. I mean, two, folds. One is that I think that like one of the, the scary things that can happen to any black creative is that you begin policing yourself over what you think is going to be acceptable by an audience, by this, you know, this or, or that. I think that one of the things that I have constantly come up in my life uh, as, as an artist, whether it's in theater, now in TV, uh, comic books, Pretty much every place that I've done creative work is the idea that like I'm creating these worlds that are, for lack of of having a nice way to say it, I'm creating these worlds that are black as fuck. Because that's the engine that that runs in me. And then right. nine times out of 10, it's a white gatekeeper that I have to take this to and ask this white person for them to believe in it and 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 so i think what can happen is if if you if you know that that's what's going to ultimately happen is that it's ultimately going to have to go to a white gatekeeper i think it's really easy for you to begin to like policing your own black creativity and your own ideas what i try to do is when i hear that in myself, the first thing I do is I think of doubling down and like, OK, like, for example, I won't go into specifics about this because I'm working on this new pitch, a TV pitch for a miniseries. And it is a historical drama that is a true story that takes place. And as I was researching this specific story, I found out that like there actually was a really amazing white man that helped this group of black people out. Like he was amazing. Um, And I thought like, oh man, I could tell these stories about like what he, cause he actually did some amazing stuff. But then I realized like, that's the problem with storytelling and blackness in America is that like, we give white characters or white people props for just doing what they should have done in the first damn place and maybe I should like keep the lens off of him and keep it on the black people that the story is centered around also like all the research material and I I know you guys have run into this as well like when you're researching material that happened like in the 40s or the 30s or, or, or the 20s or something like most of that storytelling is being told by white people and those white people tend to prioritize the white characters in the story and also like make the black characters in the story weirdly subservient to the idea that like they may be fighting white supremacy but yet they are still serving white supremacy and so like the way they talk about these characters are flawed and so for me like when I when I felt myself going in the way of like oh well so like I got this character that'll make it more palatable to white executives, my thing was like, and I'm not even going to deal with that character. He's going to be there. You will see him. And actually, like, I'm not going to steal his props. Like, you're going to see him doing what a good human being should be doing anyway, because that's what he was, right? But I'm not going to focus on him. I'm going to keep the focus on the men and the women in this story. So for me, like, your question to die hits it like, two things. Is that one, is that, like, there is this internal policing thing that white supremacy has definitely put inside of me in the sense of we are born in in all of these things. We're born in white supremacy, we're born in misogyny, like all of those things. I just feel like we all have to take an active fight within ourselves first, you know? And so I'm trying to do that. And then, yeah, absolutely, once it gets into the hands of decision-makers who tend to be white, uh, yeah, you get all sorts of pushback about how maybe you could do this and how you could do this with, with those characters. And I feel like I've just found a really, especially in my time in TV... I have been fortunate enough to work with two really amazing executives who've just been really good. I'm I'm super fortunate that one of those executives is a black woman who, like, goes to the mat for me and helps me navigate some things. But also, the other executive is a white woman, and she's been just as amazing. Like, they mm-hmm. they've helped me figure out, like how to do the jujitsu when we see the blow coming to like redirect (laughs) it and still get what we want you know i i think of a lot of younger people who end up in this business who don't have you know like i'm in my late 40s and i'm getting into tv and i'm not coming in on a staff writer level and i'm coming in with some respect on my name right so it's like i'm able to move around it easier than I think a lot of young people are. And I feel for them. I, I, I really do. But I think that for me, like, the number one thing is to, after 30 years of creative work, to stop myself from policing myself out of the Blackness of something and to, like, hmm. dive head deep into it.
1: And that decolonizing process, I think is something that we all got to deal with. Because again, it's like you're born into this construct that's always going to center this white male narrative. And you have to intentionally fight against that once you become aware of it. Mm-hmm. I think you have to intentionally fight against that. And, and it's great to see. It's funny because I see it more in TV and film now than I do in theater. It's great to see that kind of personal work on decolonizing white narratives happening with so many writers and creators. I mean, you know, shout out to Misha Green, the god yep. Misha Green. You know, yeah. shout out to Quee, Gwen. Mm-hmm. I mean, i thinking about these people who are really, you know, trying to tell stories about their culture from their perspective that are imaginative and as far out as possible. Yep. Which is something that, you know, cats our age, we didn't see that growing up.
2: No, if you had told me that I would cut on the Watchmen and in the first episode see right. the Tulsa Race Massacre... Even ten, five years ago, I've been ago. like, <laughs> "Come on, life. come yeah. on!" And you know, like I'm a comic book nerd, and I didn't get down with the Watchmen because the Watchmen didn't get down with me. If you oh, no, looked yeah. at that graphic I mean, novel, that like, comic
1: is so problematic. I mean, exactly. You know. <laughs>
2: it's like I can like have the cognitive dissonance when I'm reading Spider Man, right. when I'm reading the X Men you know, the X-Men, which ultimately is a story about race and right. and prejudice and has very little black people in it, you know, whatever, <laughs> like I could get past all that. I could put cognitive dissonance. I could like right. be like, okay, it's fine, it's fine. I got Storm, it's fine, you right. know, but <laughs> but with the Watchmen, like you are trying to deal with the issues of today and, and y- they were dealing with Reagan and with the Cold War and blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And literally, like, my community that I moved from when I was, like, 11 in, in New Jersey, because of Reagan's policies, you know, like, it went from being a strong black community into, like, crack was everywhere. And the police, were, were you know, moved up into this Gestapo-esque feel. And, like, I literally could see that happening at, you know, 14, 15 years old. Didn't understand, like, what all of it meant politically wise, but understood that like the Watchmen didn't give a fuck about what was going about on. About any there, of that. About yeah. any of that.
1: And that's from the perspective of of a of a white British guy. I mean, hey. I love Alan. Really. It's sure. like, dude, what do you even know about this?
2: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like when HBO comes along and they do the damn thing. They I just mean,
1: fuck the whole shit. The, yes. And, and then, and then, and, then
2: and then Misha comes through and, and, and does uh Lovecraft country. I mean like yeah. It is this beautiful renaissance that is happening that, like, I just never thought that I would see ever, 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 ever.
1: So why ain't that happening in the theater? You think? Because I, I mean, really. And I love a lot of the work by a lot of a lot of the young playwrights on the scene. But right now, it's like theater doesn't have that funk that TV has.
2: Yeah. I mean, you guys are more experts at it than I am. But I would just say that I think that, again, the problem is the gatekeepers and the tastemakers are not making space for that. And I think that part of what has happened with TV is that TV has finally, finally begun to get the message that if you do these things you can make money make you money. can like mm-hmm. you, you can you can blow up i mean yep i don't think that's across the board um i mean i have some personal stories that i can oh, tell yeah. you <laughs> where <laughs> it's like <laughs> bruh bruh like every like like do you see what they're doing over there do you see that they're printing money with this and you don't you don't you, that's you ain't connecting them dots so i don't think it's across the board But I would say that I think that like HBO is not perfect at at all, but I think that they see what Issa's doing, and, and that's making money, and that's doing well, and they can give these other things a try. Also, I think that, long way to answer this story, in my industry, in the podcasting and news, blah, 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 when I started my first show, State of the Reunion, someone said to me, you should do a podcast of it. And I was like, what's up? podcast, like uh, we would just do a radio. I didn't even know, (laughs) right? right? But of course we were were podcasting. The same year that my show State of the Reunion won the Peabody was the same year that uh, Serial won a a Peabody. Mm -hmm. And Serial was the game changer for everything. Like suddenly podcasting was a thing. And it was blowing up, and you know people were getting deals and crazy money, blah 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 blah. blah. And it just shifted everything. Like this serial in my ecosystem of journalism and podcasting was a singularity where mm-hmm. everything changed after that. I think in TV and and movies, Jordan Peele was a singularity that changed yeah. everything. Yeah, I think you know when um, Ava was too. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That both yeah. both of them together like created. You know, and, and, and a couple other people, but, like, they, they are at the, the foundation of the singularity that kind of switched everything up with TV mm-hmm. and, and with movies and thinking about, like, telling black stories. And I would say that, like, Ava did it with, like, the historical stuff uh, with Selma and all the things that she did after that. And Jordan did it with horror. But that just opens up doors to all these other things, you know? I don't know if we've had that singularity in theater,
0: You know, I I went to the TCG conference last last week, the Fall Forum, and there was some good stuff, but the the one that really stuck with me was a question that was asked in one of the modules, which was, assuming that we now live in an age where white supremacy no longer exists, what were the plays and stories that ended white supremacy? Oh,
1: that's a great speculative question. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Yeah, it is. It it is, right? I mean, I, I wonder... I wonder if those plays have been written. And I think I think we're kind of getting getting to that a little bit with what you're talking about with Jordan and Ava and this sort of revolution that seems to be happening in narrative structure and in terms of the lens that a narrative is focused on. But in terms of the theater, I wonder if we are, like you say, limited in, in how we conceive of theater and if that's right. holding us back.
1: I wonder, you know, thinking about this speculative question, the plays that ended white supremacy, I love that question. Uh-huh. I wonder if... Fairview would be a contender just as a play that uses structure in a different way
2: yeah I, I don't want to take away from like all the great work that has been done but I think that like it's not just about like the actual play but it's about how the audience receives it how critics talk about it and how it creates like a wave of 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 change and makes people think oh, yeah, about but things also, differently. Too, the audience that has access to it like right, how do you, like, right.
1: Have access to Fairview <laughs> right, that's right like
2: i haven't seen fairview right
1: you know or, or like any of terrell's er- early work like how many black folks actually had access to those? yes plays?
2: Mm-hmm. yes like like terrell like brah <laughs> like that's my dog like yeah. like the uh what was the trilogy he had um oh, the, brother, the brother sister
0: plays Shh, yeah. man listen
2: Listen, like to me, like if, if I could say a play that like would knock something in white supremacy, that would be his, the brother size was like my jam. Like I love I love that 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 piece. And all that being said, like, again, maybe connecting the two things here is that prior to Serial changing everything for podcasting there were great audio stories being told, amazing audio Absolutely. stories being told. Right. It was just that there was some magic that Serial had that, like, shifted everything. And so it's not like there haven't been great plays that could shake that foundation and dismantle it. It's that we haven't reached the tipping point, you know, where everything begins to shift, in my opinion, in theater yet. So so I guess my question is, where does the the genesis of that tipping point lie? I
0: mean, is it... Is it about writing plays that require a different format? I mean, is it about writing plays that can't be set in a traditional theater setting, in a traditional kind of arrangement of audience and performer and must be supported this way financially, governance-wise, all of that? I mean, are we trying to, to reshape what theater means
2: so that we can deliver it to more people in different ways? I think that's a, a great place to start. I mean, um, I so I'm just gonna be clear here like i've never been a big fan of of tyler perry's work specifically it's never really spoken to me and and i will say that there's definitely jealousy because my mother watches his plays more than she's ever watched mine but (laughs) (laughs) i'm just speaking the truth hey man we could we could we could do an entire hour on this topic alone man. right but i do think that like there i i I think there's a lot to be learned from tyler Um, oh hell yeah for sure there's so many things about Tyler's model that, like, I don't both in theater and in TV that, like, I I'm just not down with or whatever. But I'll always give the brother his respect because he is he has figured out how to reach an audience that I have I still can't figure out how to reach um, that I want to reach, and I think that that's a a, a part of it
0: as an economic model too. I mean, yep. Tyler really does disrupt the way that we think about theater right he doesn't rely on philanthropy he doesn't rely on the sort of traditional funding models and grants and shit i mean he's just he's making money
2: he's making money
0: and when you think about and when you think about theater in terms of how it makes money you target in a different way and i think that's part of what tv is getting right yeah right if we're going to play within a capitalist system where that's the primary goal and that's the language that everybody speaks. Yeah. TV is dependent on ad dollars, yep. really. Mm-hmm. You talk about game changers.
1: I'm, I mean, you know, I would add Tyler up there with Ava and and with Absolutely. Jordan because, like, just the way that he totally reworked the whole idea of how many episodes you can produce in one year—that <laughs> changed the TV game. Yeah, mm, like, totally. Like, streaming. So it's totally. like you know, and, and his you know his kind of old school chillin' circuit theatrical model. Where all of his work was self produced, I think when you really start thinking about what are ways that we can change that dynamic in theater i mean i I think it's about having more black producers it mm-hmm. It is
2: it so when I was heavy, heavy, heavy in the theater, which like you know was years ago, really, like I'm still writing. Obviously, when theater gets going back again, I want to be back in the thick of it. But I think that for me, like, because I didn't have, uh, I didn't go to grad school. I, I, hell, I didn't go to undergrad. Being a black playwright that was out doing work. Um, all the gigs that I got, I had to hustle and and yeah. send out scripts and knock on doors and harass people and blah 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 blah. And people who have degrees have to do that as well. But I just think that like there is this door of snobbery that theater has that will not oh, let yeah. you through the when door it comes unless you... black
1: storytelling. So so, right. so it's like even if you have a degree, you know, right. if, You know, did you go to Yale? Did you go to Carnegie? Yep. So it's not just having the degree, but it's you know the department. The, the the
2: the
0: pedigree who, who of the in, degree. Who who in the academy approved your ass? Exactly. Right. Exactly.
2: Right. Listen, I'm just gonna say this, but a lot of the people who get approved by the academy, like you, just like come on, man, they're not even good. They just doing shit that make white people happy and comfortable with <laughs> with whatever it is that they're happy and comfortable with. I mean, and that's know, what
0: they that's what they've been trained to do. That's what the academy right. trains them to yeah, do, right? right? Because if you're gonna get that paper, you need to make sure that whoever is approving that paper to be written with your name on it is happy with your work.
2: Exactly. If you're
1: gonna get that paper, if you're gonna get that Tony nomination, no shade. Um <laughs> you know. A little what? little shade. What kind of narrative are you pushing to these predominantly white audiences?
2: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I try to look at black artists who are trying to figure it out. Definitely with the benefit of the doubt and understanding like, you know, what they've had to do to get to the places that they're in. So I, I get some of it. But, you know, the issue isn't about whether or not they should have an opportunity. Really, the issue is about that more people should have an opportunity, you know, Mm -hmm. that like it shouldn't just be one voice that defines what's Blackness or one voice that defines edgy. And when it comes to Black people in almost every artistic field, like usually they pick out one and they let that one in to do it. And the rest of us just have to figure out how to get around, which also creates this feeling within... The black creatives who are not that one of a feeling of lack, like, oh, uh, we can't get in. We can't get that. And and then it just creates like this thing where we're all arguing and fighting with each other. You know, I got right. plenty of critiques about uh, Tyler Perry's business model and his storytelling and all of that. But ultimately, and I'm more than happy to have that conversation, but ultimately, like, I respect a brother. You know, I I, I respect his hustle. I mm-hmm. give him nothing but props uh, if I ever met him, I, w- I would treat him with, with maximum respect. Doesn't mean I sign on to everything that he does. Doesn't mean I agree with with his storytelling choices or the fact that he doesn't have a writer's room and he writes a lot. But I respect him.
1: <laughs> Way too much. But, 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 but also, too, it's, it's like, you know, I mean, he's found his audience. Like,
2: totally. I mean,
1: I'm not Tyler Perry's audience. And I think the other thing that we have to deal with is the fact that, I mean, what's exciting now is that I think we've just scratched the surface on the complexities and richness of Black narratives. I think we've just simply scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. And so that's exciting. So I I think there are more stories to be told. But also, we really have to kind of reframe how we think about Black audiences. Mm -hmm. Black audiences are not a monolith, you know? And I feel, you know, Tyler's found his. And I just feel like there are other Black audiences out there looking for other black narratives and they haven't even been approached yet.
0: Yep. And and we have to get we have to get rid of this idea that, that it's that it's this war between Tyler and Spike. I mean it's it's so much more complex than that. But right yeah. now, those are the sort of mainstream avenues that you can go down.
2: I'm 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 not gonna speak low spike
0: right now. Like, <laughs> stop,
1: stop, 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 that could be some no we don't need
0: that shady. I think I think of a movie like uh, like this one that's on, on Netflix right now, um uh, The Old Guard mm, mm-hmm. by Gina Price bythewood And and that oh yeah, that's a fantastic reimagining of the action movie. Centers a strong black female, and the way that storytelling kind of transcends sociopolitics throughout time is mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah, right? no, I love I, lo- I love that. I
2: loved it. Is that
0: based on the comic?
2: Yeah, that was based on uh mm-hmm. Greg Old Guard. Yeah, Greg yeah. Rucka is a beast. Yeah. <laughs> I I love his writing. When we come out of this space that we're in right now, when the pandemic, because the thing is, is that like pretty much all the other ways that we tell stories, um, i.e. TV, film, those are moving forward, but moving forward slowly. Um, Whereas it feels like theater is moving forward at the pace of a glacier pre-global warming so um, (laughs) I think that once we get to a point where theater is able to engage I am hoping that all the conversations that are happening all over the country begin to take seed and actually bear fruit don't know if that's going to happen because white supremacy is strong and patient and alive and well and she's
1: stronger than ever
2: Mm-hmm. exactly stronger than ever stronger than ever in the sense that like it's actually comfortable with saying what it is out loud and then being able to enact that agenda with fearlessness and nothing right. you know
0: no coding no no, nope. no no masking I wonder though if that's if that's actually a good thing because because it, it, in a way it gives
2: us a target we can hit right? yeah i don't disagree i don't disagree i mean like you know Adai, like i i, I don't know how y- you feel but like growing up in jacksonville I was appreciative of the Confederate flag because it let me know to stay away from you. Exactly. That like I know that we not gonna get down. So I'm just gonna go right. over here.
1: I'm go over here. You know, I'm gonna let right. you do you and I'm gonna yep. do me. Right. And I mean, you know, that that that's the benefit of, of living in the South, which is why it's interesting too that I think the South is changing so rapidly mm-hmm. because you know, the South has never had any delusions about white supremacy no. no. <laughs> and i think because of that lack of delusions uh the idea of a racial reckoning you know for southerners was like oh you mean tuesday i mean right <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, right right exactly <laughs> so, oh okay we can deal with this so right. i think in a lot of ways you know uh the south is probably changing at a faster pace than the rest of the country
0: you Mr. know its oh, this flag probably. yep yeah Yeah.
1: I mean, folks in other places are still kind of dealing with the fact that, you know, white supremacy actually exists and white privilege actually exists. They're still reckoning with that, which I think is hilarious. But that's just the reality.
2: Out here in the Bay, it, it just kills me how people act like we are so it's a liberal area and blah, 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 blah. And like, it's just like, come on, man. Like. The homelessness out here is off the chain, and when you right. look at like who the homeless people tend to be, then you understand that race is playing a part majorly here. When you understand like I back in the the nineties or whatever, when I was a flight attendant, I would come out here to the Bay sometimes, like doing shows or whatever, and there was actually like black folks that like lived in San Francisco. You know, it was like actually black communities. There are still black people that live in San Francisco, but those communities on a whole have been decimated. And that's about race. You know, it's right. about race and economics and all of that. But we can pretend that it's not that right. Like out here, we, we can we mm-hmm. can look past it because like, well, we're not like they are in the South. And it's just like, actually, you might be a little worse. You might be a little worse. Because in the yeah. South, we just know we, we, we deal with it.
1: So how do we deal with, and I'm thinking now in relation to theater earlier in the year or during the summer, there was such a a very vocal attempt at addressing racism and white supremacy. That's kind of quieted down a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it makes me wonder where do we go as we move forward, as we deal with all the realities of trying to create theater In, in the midst of a pandemic with a vaccine, you know, maybe a couple of months off. How do we continue to push for not simply equity and diversity, but also push for, you know, spaces for Black narratives to have a home?
2: Yeah, I I think that, um, I think it comes in a, in a, bunch of different ways, because I don't I don't think that one way is ever going to solve anything, especially not in America, because racism yeah. is like whack-a-mole. It pops up over here. You think you got it settled here, and then it pops up over there, and then you think, you know, you just keep going. So I think it's like a multi-tiered approach. I think that uh, two things need to happen. One is that people of color and black folks need to be empowered in leadership positions, you know, the interesting thing, I think about this a lot. The interesting thing about the Republican Party is that years ago, they decided that they were going to run, that they were going to put candidates up in every possible slot they could. So they thought about like, we're going to have Republicans run for a school board. We're going to have Republicans run Mm -hmm. for water management. We're going to have blah, blah, blah. And, you know, 20 years later, you can see the effects of that where like they have been able to run the board because they've got all the people in the right positions. And I think that like, that is a blueprint for change. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if you think about it, like it is important that we get black or BIPOC leadership when it comes to the artistic side. But it's just as important that we think about Black uh, or BIPOC uh, leadership when it comes to audience outreach, um, when it comes to uh, funders, when it comes to all of those little things in the theater. Like, it's not just that one position of the artistic director that we need to be thinking about. It's all the positions and how do we, like you know hold all of those accountable to it. So so that would be like one aspect of it on the administration side. On the other side of it, I think that like we should hold places like that that are the quote-unquote tastemakers to task that they have these genius black brown BIPOC people in positions as as reviewers. If you think about the New York Times, how long had they just had two white reviewers reviewing plays you yeah. know and 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 like all the stuff that those guys and women left on the table because a they didn't either understand it or b they just didn't see it you know cuz like white supremacy is blinders you just can't see all of that stuff so i think that like mm. holding holding the tastemakers accountable so that they bring people in Um, that have a wider range of experience that can really understand America. So that's the second part. The other part that I would go to is I think that all these theater programs across the country need to be held accountable as to who they have as instructors and teachers and thinkers. Because like we have to start on the the basic level of like, so you're going to be teaching these young BIPOC who have crazy imaginations and you're the person that's like, putting the constraints around it and what does right. that mean you know so like we, we we have to look at that and then I think you know it's about like also like the creatives who are currently out thinking about like how to like decolonize their mind from from what's going on and also like how to reach out to the young people coming up because you know w- one of the things that I love 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 about the younger generation is that like, so all of us are, are, are Gen X, right? And Gen right. X, like our DNA is to keep our head down and just do the work. And you see that bullshit happening. You may confront it, but then you just put your head down and keep marching through because, you know, right. it's different than the boomer mind state. It's like, like we, we clean up the boomers mess and we don't talk about it, we just keep going. And this right. younger generation is like, fuck that
1: but <laughs> so, so, but 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 i also think though too like what i would love if the younger because you know because i always ignore gen x because we're kind of in the middle but mm-hmm. what i would really w- wish for the millennials and the exennials to at least think about in relation to gen x is that we also have an attitude of like fucking i'm gonna go smoke a joint
2: <laughs> exactly. and
1: i'm so worried about these these younger cats like becoming burnt out sure but, yeah. I also but you gotta make
2: space that. for your joy too. You gotta right. make space to that's say right, like right. uh you know what? I'm I'm gonna let this go because it's <laughs> gonna cost more for me to this is the thing exactly. that like I think Generation X does maybe too too much, which is that like sometimes so example at a job that I had at one point, I had a, a white woman as my manager, my supervisor. And if she had a drink at a party, you know, at a work function, she'd get a little tipsy and would twirl my hair with her finger. Um, at <laughs> one point she said to me, like, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but it feels so good. And I would then remove myself from the situation, right? And I would go home Angry as fuck and stewing it, but then I would uh, let it go. Because mm-hmm. for me, having to talk to HR, like it was like emotional labor that I just did not want to do. And yeah, I right. made peace with it and let it go until the next Christmas party. Peace right. with it, let it go. Millennials burn shit down, burn and I bad. am happy that they have that because i don't like i don't have the desire to burn anything down like i just want to go home and like i, I won't cut on the mandalorian <laughs> <and> then, like <laughs> go to a, a universe far far away and but, not but think you know, about
0: this you know but you know bur- burning shit down is great as long as you have some strategies to what you're burning because you know i mean and look, what you want to rebuild the left the left that's right. right. The left hand of our country is on fire right now, and we see right. what happens when a fire gets out of control. Exactly. Right. exactly. It it takes everything out. And I, and I wonder what part of the sort of where we can find the strategy within the Gen X <laughs> modus operandi and the and and use that to temper the sort of millennial passion, right? I mean, it it seems yeah. to me that it, that if we don't wait for our shots, it's going to become mm-hmm. the boy who cried wolf and and eventually yeah. they ain't going to listen to any of it, right? It's it's so easy to tune out. A lot of these complaints because the complaints come from every microaggression, yeah. every single time. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a white woman who was really, she, she's become really fired up by this. I mean, she has really, and she's a Gen Xer, she's almost 50, and she just, she has become incensed about what's happening. Um, and she's talking to a lot of millennials. She teaches university. So, you know, people she's coming into contact with are between 20 and 25, mostly, uh, sort of upperclassmen and and grad students um and she she was apoplectic the other night because she was she just you know what do we do it's just horrible everything's horrible i was like it's not it really doesn't matter these people are fine we're all going to be fine right right. well Mm -hmm. it is horrible and i said no it's always been like this and we've always been fine
1: yeah the difference between black x's and white x's is that Mm -hmm. we're like Y'all just figured out the shit is fucked up. It's always been fucked up. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, right. 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 It's always been fucked up. <laughs> right. This has been my entire life. It's, right. And, and, so. and, and you know, the
2: interesting thing, like, it'll be interesting to see if the white Gen Xers have the same trajectory as black Gen Xers had because like the anger and rage that they're feeling right now, the white the white Gen Xers, uh-huh. I felt that at eighteen and nineteen years old. No, we had that like I in was, the late eighty right. When right. I was like, blasting public enemy an and the entire, like, an entire
1: genre of hip hop
2: yes. was about
1: black hip hop location exit rage.
2: Exactly. Right. We went through it. We went through it and and, and, and it's not that like like that rage can be set off in me very quickly. Oh, but, real quick! Yeah, it's like it's it's like literally like the fire is still smoking right now, and all it needs is a little lighter fluid, and it's a rage. But I have figured out how to keep that campfire low, right? And go forward with my day. Like as a nerd, like I I remember watching uh the Avengers, the first Avengers, uh-huh. uh, uh, in the movie theater. And there was the scene when, like, the wars happening, everything is crazy, and uh, and it was time for the Hulk to come out, and uh, right. and they were like, you know, you know, what are you gonna do? Because they were talking to Bruce Banner, it's like, what are you gonna do? And like, you gotta get angry, and he turns and looks at the camera and says, "The secret is, I'm always angry," and then I'm suddenly he turns into the Hulk. Listen, <laughs> I have never been more seen in my life. Uh-huh. Exactly. That's <laughs> it. <laughs>
1: Yes. Only like, a comic book fucking nerd would make that a doubt They yes. see me. I am the Hulk. <laughs> right. I yes. am Wolverine. They see me.
2: I was interviewing Nicole Hannah Jones, who is my home girl. Um, uh-huh. M- Nicole is a beast. I-, I-, I met Nicole probably at this point, like it's been eight years or so at this stuffy ass journalism conference, and she came in like I mean, bangles, you know, hair doing it. She was like, she she was. F- fully embodied in who she is in a way that like most of the black folks in there, we were still in our um, code switching mode. Like she does not, she's like, she is who she is. And I love that Mm -hmm. about her, but I was talking to her about the work that she does. uh, And I said like, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have to be angry when you, she was like, Oh, Al, I'm always angry. (laughs) Like I don't ever not be angry. It's just that we figure out how to channel that anger
1: And I think that's what it is. Because I think keeping that fire going is important.
2: Absolutely. You just
1: have to really know how to modulate it. Right. And not let the fire burn you up.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I worry is happening with the millennials and and, and younger, is that, like, that fire, if you do not figure out how to channel it and and make it work – and not that they aren't. I mean, I'm sure a lot of them are. I'm just saying that, like, I wonder – you know.
1: But I also think though, p- a part of our mission is to help them learn how to temper that.
2: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, Absolutely. I got a
0: question for you since, since you brought it up, Val, this idea of code switching. Mm-hmm. So as an acting teacher, uh, you know, I'm, I'm walking into a classroom where they're going to be students of color and I'm talking to them about craft, mm-hmm. right? And within the craft, there has to be, I think, an element of learning how to code switch within the character, right? Because... Mm-hmm. For example, if you're going to do a historical drama, right, about, oh, I don't know. Why don't we just pick a play? Like, we're going to do Intimate Apparel, Mm -hmm. right? Characters in this play live in a very specific place and time. We're trying to encourage people to not code switch because you want to be true to yourself, right? And that should be acceptable to the world. Mm -hmm. But you can't necessarily take that into a play about Black folks from a specific time because that life was all about code switching, Mm -hmm. right? And those stories deserve to be told. So, you know, a, a black woman living in Victorian New York would have to behave a certain way in order to be accepted in the world. She, she couldn't behave like, a, a you know, a black millennial from 2020. Otherwise, whatever progress she made socially would never have happened. So yeah. how do we approach that from a training perspective to say, look, I'm not trying to to squelch anything. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to hide you. We do need to honor the work that these people did, because at, at a certain point, code switching was subversive.
2: I mean, I think that, like, obviously, like, when, you, when, when you're when you training actors, it's all about, like, you have to put you and your politics aside and be the character and be where they mm-hmm. are. I think as a writer, and I'm thinking about this a lot because of this new project that I'm working on, which is set, like, 40s or so, is that I am specifically writing scenes that show these characters as they are when they are with white people and then showing how they talk when they're with their people. And I think that that is like the important thing to think about. And so like this story that I'm telling, I'm reading like seven different books on this era and this time or whatever so when i'm researching i got like three different highlighter colors and the little colored tabs or whatever and they all equate different things so i know when i need to like look for something quick you know and like i have a tab and highlight just for like language that the black folks used because i want to make sure that they are speaking authentically how they would speak with their people but Mm -hmm. i have plenty of representation of understanding how they spoke to white people because i think that like what what we've always done is that right how those people spoke to white people
0: so so i guess one of the things that that may be helpful is is to think more about the intentionality
2: of the code switch as yes. opposed to
0: just assuming that the code switch is what happens right it's, it
2: because the intentionality oh, yeah. tells you everything about the character, right? It tells you everything right. about the character and the world. It's specific. If one character does not code switch when he's with his mm-hmm. black friends, that tells you everything you need to know about that character, right? That mm-hmm. means that
1: he's ready to die. <laughs> 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 What's great about that question, E.B., and I think about it a lot as it relates to period pieces and having written a lot of period pieces at this point. And it's interesting too because Only recently, maybe in the past 20 years, have there been scholars and researchers who really focus on the interior lives of Black people Mm -hmm. in earlier periods of time. We didn't have that scholarship like 20 years ago. So you have writers who are writing about the interior lives of these Black people and how these folks existed when they weren't in white spaces. And when it comes to historical pieces about us, which I think we haven't even scratched the surface of those yet. I want to hear those interior narratives. Yep. I don't want to see another period piece about Black people clashing with white supremacy. We know that happened. Mm-hmm. But what were these folks doing at home in their neighborhoods? Yep. Those are the stories that I want to hear because I, I think the reason people are so frustrated with Black people in period pieces is that it's always us in relation to white supremacy right? right. as opposed to us and how we exist in our internal lives.
0: With white supremacy just being a condition of the world.
1: Yeah, ju- just yep. like, you know... It's like breathing oxygen. It's just there. <laughs> right.
0: You
2: know?
1: But what do we do when we're at home in our own communities? And I, and I, and I think when it comes to teaching, especially, you know, Black and brown and, and yellow students about these narratives, it's important for Black educators. Because I, I feel like all of us, the three of us at least, and it could be a generational thing too, have reached beyond the point of co-switching in our personal lives. And I think it's important for young Black artists To know that they don't have to code switch in their real lives (laughs) (laughs) but they need to understand how code switching was a survival tool for generations and generations but i think i think it's a survival tool that we don't necessarily need in the same way
2: anymore no i i agree I i i agree with everything you just said adai i also look at it a little bit differently in the sense of like Telling the story of white supremacy and blackness, like in imperial pieces. Let, let me ask you a question about sure. something that's sort of tangential to this. And I
0: keep coming back to Julius X because, I mean, A, it was one of the one of the first pieces I directed. And so mm-hmm. it was one of the first pieces I, I got intimately related to from that side of the page. Not as an actor, but as a director, looking at the whole picture. You know, that's become part of my dramaturgy practice as i gotten older. But at the time, it was the first time I, I managed to look at something in a fulsome way. And what's always struck me about it is the way that you adapted Shakespeare in particular
2: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. to to that world. And I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about that because you know a lot of what we're talking about, you know, in at least here in higher education, is this idea of decolonizing the classics.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I was speaking to Robert Barry Fleming the other day, who was a previous guest on the podcast, a friend of mine. And we were talking about this because he was saying, you know, the source material of Shakespeare is not is, is not necessarily Eurocentric. It's not white supremacist. He took those stories from all over the world. Right. Have you read Tempest? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, of course. It ain't about white supremacy. I don't know what it is. I mean, Tempest is well, literally. About I'm talking about the source material. I'm not talking about what he oh, did okay, I mean this. the source material. Okay, OK, because he took those stories and adapted them to his lens. Right. And what I feel like you've done with Julius X is taken Shakespeare's version and adapted it back to your lens. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering where that
2: flexibility lies and how we can explore that a bit more. I just think that like all the things that we look at as classics today and hold in reverence today were literally like when they were created, they were just plays that people came out to see and enjoy, you know, there's so much of Shakespeare's work that I love. Uh, some of it I'm 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 not crazy about, but so much of it I love. So much of the Greek tragedies I love, or whatever. But this was like common work for common folk. And my thing is like mm. I am uh, I refuse to allow the snobbery and the ownership of this work that was made for common people to lie in the hands of uh, the elite. Uh, and so for me, it was like, you know, I want to tell this story and I don't give a fuck what any of these Shakespeare speer, uh, uh, people have to say about it. The story that I have in my head and the way to bash it up is is part of the fun. And I come, I mean, like we all come from that generation where like hip hop was really about sampling and recreating and rethinking something that was already there and making it better. And so for me, it was like I have reverence for The work, because obviously, like, something in it, like, struck a chord with me, but uh, I don't feel like, like, I feel like me having reverence to the point where, like, I forget why it's important is ridiculous, you know, Mm -hmm. like, so for me, it's like the tragedy of Julius Caesar, the writing in it always excited me as a kid. Like, having Mark Antony do his speech, I come not to praise Caesar, but to bury him. I remember as a young man going like, "Good Lord, the writing in that is it, money." Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that nobody was going to cast me as Mark Anthony. So for me, <laughs> it was like, "You're not going to cast me? I will. I will cast myself. Thank you very I will much. Remix it. Remix. Exactly. I will remix it, and I will. I will turn it into my own thing." So, so that's kind of where I've always been with all the classics. Is that like, you know, it would. 200 years from now, 200 years from now, nobody's going to know who I was and that's totally fine. But 200 years from now, if someone stumbles across one of my plays and they're like, no, we're going to do it this way. We're going to like make it with, with digital memes. I mean, I'm going to be in my grave going like,
0: Thank you. Like,
2: so I don't get into that, you know? I I wanted to go back, though, to what Adaya had brought up about historical and and, and white supremacy and, and say, like, I agree with that idea of, like, seeing the inner lives of black people regardless of what white supremacy was doing. But I also think that, like, there's a story to be told now I don't think I can talk about the room that I'm in right now, but I will say I'm in a a room for a show that I think is going to be huge on, uh, I can say it's it's going to be on Hulu with an amazing writing group. I mean, the the writer's room is just bananas how good these people are. And this story takes place in like the 20s. And there is a part of the story that is about like Black resistance. Uh, It's not the whole engine of the show at all, but definitely, you know, and as we are working on it, the more we work on it, the more I think about how important this story is to tell in the sense that like black folks have always resisted this, always always resisted Mm -hmm. this stuff. And I think that like what I want everybody, not just young black people, but I think like there's this whole movement, or at least it was for a time where you were seeing people saying like, I'm not my ancestors, don't pull up. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, My ancestors were back. I don't know what your ancestors did. <laughs> oh, what you were doing. <laughs> my, ancestors, my ancestors. But my ancestors was fighting every way they possibly could to tell this story and like to do some research and then find that like there was this church where like they were uh, trying to play um, my country, Tis of Thee or something like that. and And the whole black congregation was like, nope and they sat there with their arms folded. Like we mm-hmm. have been doing, we have protested our condition from the start. We have always, mm. like like my girl, Nicole Hannah-Jones has said, like we are the perfectors of democracy. We believed in this raggedy ass country when this raggedy ass country didn't even believe in the things that it had written down. And so mm-hmm. f- the, the things that it says it's about. And so for me, like I agree that we need more stories about what we were doing within us, but I also think we, we have yet to see enough stories that center us and show in the, us- In the resistance. In, 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 yeah. Right, center us and show us that we are yeah. in resistance to this white supremacy.
1: if if there was a way to describe the black American aesthetic in one word, it would be resistance.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: I talked to you about him last time we we spoke at diet about William Wells Brown. And I am, I've started working on this play about him, but, but one of the things that that I, and I've been doing a lot of research on him, but, but one of the things that, that I keep coming back to is this incident where he was an escaped slave. Okay. (laughs) daya has got the book. I'm writing it down right now. (laughs) Just a, a little background on him. He was born a slave in Kentucky. Uh, he was sold to a man in, in or he moved to uh, St. Louis, Missouri. He escaped once with his mother. They were captured, brought back to slavery. Uh, he was put to work on steamships uh, up and down the rivers. He escaped again into Ohio, married a free black woman, and eventually settled in Buffalo. When he got to Buffalo, he started shuttling people across with a group of other folks to St. Catharines, Ontario, Escape slaves to St. Catharines, Ontario. There was an incident where slave catchers went into Canada recaptured this couple brought them back to the states and they were met at the border by william wells brown and 50 other armed black men who got into a shootout with the sheriffs took this couple took them back to canada S-A-G. why has this story not been told yes yes not I just mean,
1: that but he's also one of our first he's one of the first black american playwrights
2: whose work the is the first
1: in arguably yeah you know whose work is still in existence that we know of so was, yeah. i mean he's a bad motherfucker
2: I am literally like looking him up right now. Just ordered the book done. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, It's like, but, but, but that just goes back to the fact that there are so many, there's just so many stories that still need to be told that we haven't mm-hmm. told. Yep. Getting back to EB's question about, you know, the, the canon and reverence. I just feel like we're at a post reverential period in time. Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, and and even the idea of the canon itself is so much grounded in in elitism. If there's anything we should revere, it should be good storytelling. Yep. And not necessarily personas or attitudes that we're told we should revere.
2: Yep. I I think exactly what you just said, Adai, is that, like, you know, if theater wants to remain relevant, if theater wants to, like, bring in those type of uh, crowds that, like, Tyler Perry can bring in whenever he does something, the number one thing that has to go is that elitism feel. And I think mm-hmm. that part of, like, what what theater has done for, you know, God, for forever is, like, felt that we were better than the other right. forms of entertainment, better than, like, trashy TV, better than, like, we are just, we are cultured because we go to the theater. And that is the number one thing that gets in the way of us actually reaching out to people that we want to get in the theater. You know, and yep. now, like after a pandemic, you know we're gonna need to get butts in seats, <laughs> and right. and so mm-hmm. th- that's the number one thing we have to get away from.
0: Man, this has been a fantastic hour. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, I am. Uh, and I was
0: sober, and that, that's amazing. <laughs> that may be that may be a first for us. I don't know if we've no, done that before. Know, look, you know,
1: <laughs> no liquor, no brownies. Look at God. Look at look God. Look at man. God.
0: <laughs> Al, thank you so much for coming on today. This was Thanks, awesome. brothers.
2: It it was a joy to hang out with you. Uh to oh. hang out with all of you.
0: But do you do you want to talk about reveal at all? Do you want to give nah. a little plug for reveal? yourself. here we are.
2: Reveal is an investigative podcast where I am the host and um and we try to do good work every week. And uh yeah, we got a, a serial coming out uh in 2021 that uh yeah as a beast um it's killing me but um but hopefully it'll 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 spark some conversations
0: can't wait man it's a fantastic show thank you guys all right man well we almost to the end of the season we got one more episode left uh, oh wow and then we'll we'll sit down and, and figure out what we're gonna do for 2021 when the world is completely different white supremacy will be gone
1: I'll be gone. It'll be over. It'll it'll be over. Dipping through the woods, holding hands.
0: Yeah, it'll be fantastic. We'll see you next episode and we'll figure out where we're going to go in 2021. But uh, (laughs) it's good to see you, my brother. Thank you so much. (laughs) Old Heads was written and created by E.B. Smith and Adai Moon in association with Ghostlight Creative. Produced by Nicole Unju Bell. Edited by Vern Good. If you're enjoying Old Heads and want to hear more and support what we're doing here, head over to Patreon and support our page at patreon.com oldheads. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.